The Burning Bird presents The Phoenix Files, featuring Steve Leinert. But, uh, you know what? I'm shoot or shoot. Alexander Shaggy Shragus. And that Nardy was wild. And then it ends. Nard gets a, the gold. And Harvish Huck Meta. Oh my god. Again. This is what the Phoenix do. You know, they give me hope. They give me hope. All right, so we're gonna we're trying something we're trying something completely different this week, which is we're gonna go back in time to May nineteenth, twenty nineteen, where the Philadelphia Phoenix took on the Toronto Rush at AA Garthwaite Stadium in perhaps the biggest win in Phoenix franchise history, and we're gonna relive quarter by quarter the just how it came to fruition, like how did the Phoenix finally come to upend the mighty Toronto rush. The Phoenix drew first blood to go up one nothing in the first quarter. That was essentially a very tight game. What was cool about this point is it just is so easy, and it it made it made me think, oh, it's just going to be an easy game. We'll trade holds, and none of the rest of the game was like this. This was the quickest, most efficient point of the whole game. There won't be another point without a turn for like seven or eight points after this. This is an amazingly fast, easy point, and it was wild. It was not a good indicator for the game to come. Well, and we we, we should preface this by saying Toronto is entering the game. It's a, It was a Sunday game. Saturday night, they played in New York against the Empire in what was a knockdown, drag-out, East Division, old-school battle. And they may have been suffering a tad bit of a letdown. The Phoenix did not have to play that Saturday night prior and were relatively fresh and at home, and were waiting to pounce on the on the rush. And they came out and got that first goal, which was, like you said, very efficient. Is that what you saw there, Huck? Uh, Steve, I think what's interesting is before that that game, during that podcast that we had with the Sands brothers, you said, hey, Toronto's coming down. They're only looking at New York to beat, and they might even bypass the Phoenix. They might even look at the – not even practice for the Phoenix, thinking that they're going to come in and just take a quick and easy win. Yeah, I, I called it the first burning bird. Remember, we said, what surprises are there going to be? And I said that they were going to win this game. And then later, we were like, oh, we don't know. We, we Then we all decided. And then it was a trap game. We all came around. But on the very first burning bird, I called this win. I just wanted to remind the world. Yes, Shaggy's, Shaggy's going to hurt his arm by patting himself on the back there. With this. <laughs> no, but Shaggy did call it. He did, he did say that there was this was going to be an upset game. So we were kind of looking to pounce on that too, and I think it was a perfect start for us. I mean, the first point was absolutely perfect. It was it looked spectacular, and the second point Toronto was playing, that point was perfect for us too. They had a turn, and then they took a quick timeout for no reason, and then they tucked it and turned it again. Honestly, it was a perfect start for us in that game. So the the Phoenix in the rush, they trade points. Toronto gets a D block and a quick goal to tie the game at two. Towards the end of the first quarter, though, I think was one of the bigger plays of the game. Eric Nardelli got a layout block near the, with Toronto driving towards the goal, and then he ended up throwing a goal to give the Phoenix its first break and a 5-3 lead. This point is wild. It'll start off with Nick Patel, who was not the biggest guy on the team last year, skying a Toronto player for the initial D, and then Hampson will call a timeout, put the O-line on, the O-line will get a quick turn, and then Toronto will do the same thing, and they'll turn it back. There were three timeouts called in this quarter, which means that one of a, one of the teams, I think it was Toronto, was going to run out of timeouts on this, this last-minute drive, and it's because 
they never were able to convert. Every time that a team called a timeout in the first quarter, the other team was able to score. They were able to get possession back and score. And that Nardi was wild. And then it ends. Nardi gets the goal, the break to go ahead, go up 5-3 in the end zone. He's shoved in the back, and it's an integrity call. He misses it initially, and he gets it back on an integrity call in the last 10 seconds of the quarter. There was quite a few uh, chances for integrity calls in this game, and I think it speaks to the refereeing a little bit. Things were a little, the whistles were put away and they were letting them play in this particular game. The Phoenix jump out to a 5-3 lead there, Huck. What did you think of Nardelli's defense? I, I think this is kind of another progression we saw in the whole game where the defense just bailed out the offense quarter after quarter. Especially in this first quarter, defense really came through for us and scored some points when I needed to and broke some points, yeah. Defensively, I think that this was strategically the best game that the Phoenix uh, played all year. And, you know, we went into this game. We were talking about Akifumi Maraoka, uh, this star rookie for Toronto. He was kind of taking the league by storm. And we really shut him down. Um, I think he'll have he'll end the game with a with like plus one, um, a bunch of turnovers. And he that first that first quarter, uh, we run five points where we come out on defense and we'll run five different defensive sets. And a different person will cover Akafumi Murioka each time, including on that last play. We don't even cover him. No one runs down. Nard is just waiting in the back. He cuts deep right into where Nard is just waiting in the backfield to pick him up as he cuts. We just talked to Nard, Steve, about, you know, all the work that he and Nate puts into planning for the defense. And and they were brilliant in that first quarter, even though they only got one break to show for it. That seemed to be the case bridging the first and second quarters as the Phoenix built their lead from 7-4 to 9-5. Their four-goal lead to go up 9-5 would be their biggest of the game in a game that Toronto never led. It was interesting to see the Phoenix apply that pressure to go up 9-5, but then all of a sudden Toronto seemed to get their second wind. I think part of it was that um, Sean Mott gets into a fight at the beginning of the second quarter. And it's sort of off camera, so we can't really see it. But I remember being at the game, and I was just floored that it was happening. And then we had to pull Mott for, like, one or two points, I think, just to calm him down. The the Toronto player gets the unsportsmanlike call, but it could have gone either way, honestly. That was the home field advantage coming in there. And so we have to pull Mott for two points, and I think that's why they're able to pick up that break. Do, do you think Mott's actions there fired the Phoenix up a little bit? Or do you think that it had a negative effect? If I had to choose, I would always choose Mott gets into a fight. Uh, I think it's, you know, part of the game. Part of the reason I remember this game so well (laughs) is that fight. But it's not that it hurts the Phoenix necessarily, the other players. It's that we have to pull Mott there because we need need him to calm down so he doesn't get thrown out of the game. And that means that he's not on. Like, a couple points later, we'll give up a break. And it's, like, the only offensive possession that Mott doesn't play the whole game. I see what you're saying. Okay. So uh, that that's why Toronto got the big uh, got their first break of the game is because Mott wasn't in the game, right? Gosh, and because right. he had had that fight earlier. All right. Well, now the Phoenix with 105 left in the first half, they have a nine seven lead, but then they come up big where Huck's brother Himalaya gets a big deep D. Uh, Greg Martin picks up some trash on a on a throw that floated over the intended receiver's head. And Mott with the uh, big, big throw for an upwind goal to give the Phoenix a 10-7 lead. They would take a 10-8 lead in the half thanks to a a deep uh, buzzer-beating goal at halftime. But they would come out 
like gangbusters to start the second half and open with a break to reestablish their four-goal lead at 12-8. I think in this case, I mean, that's this is really important where I think we saw this theme with the Phoenix all season where they actually started off strong, right? They started off the first half pretty strong, gained leads, and then in the second half, they kind of dwindled. You know, they kind of didn't keep that same intensity. And I think in this game, starting off the, the second half at the break, is amazing. It was like the perfect thing we needed to say, hey, we're here to stay and we're going to continue pushing um, this team. Steve, Steve, what, Steve, Go ahead. While, while we're talking about this, what, so we did have the Sands brothers on that podcast and they kind of called this game to say that this is their game. What do you, what do you think of the performance so far up until, oh. up until the second half? I mean, I feel like they played a huge role. Uh, they, they played a they played a huge role, and we're going to get to the Sands brothers coming down to the end. I mean, they, they were they were pivotal in the in securing this win, both of them, um, especially on the defensive side of the uh, of the disc. And uh, I just I just think that uh, there was a, quite a few unsung heroes that revealed themselves in rewatching the game uh, that uh, that perhaps we didn't catch right off the bat, and the Sands brothers are are two of them. I want to just double back a little bit because I don't want to gloss over one of my favorite plays of the game. So Stu Heen has a really tough game, but he has a moment here where he'll get it. Uh, he'll, he'll catch the disc on an in cut. He's kind of going out of bounds, but I think he toes the line pretty well. And then the ref will call him out and Stu will turn around like this. The ref whistle in the mouth, takes the disc out of Stu's hand because Stu's is like, he's just put his hands up. Like, I don't know what I did. He takes the disc out of Stu's hand, puts it on the ground, and points the other way and whistles, and then runs away. Does not say a word. Stu doesn't say anything. And you, Steve, on the broadcast are like, that has got to be one of the coldest. I can't believe it. You're shocked <laughs> that someone would act that way. It was, it was brutal. And Stu's like, I don't know what to do. You didn't even say anything. <laughs> it was, I think I remember that, man. That was, a, that was one of the coldest ways to just remove the disc from someone's hands. They just take it, put it on the ground, and run away, pointing the other direction. There's nothing you can say or do about it. <laughs> some, of these, some of these calls in this game were, 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 were something else, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right. So with not the gloss over any more notes or anything, but uh, we're now at 546 left in the third quarter, and the uh, wind is 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 picking up a little bit uh, at A.A. Garthwaite Stadium, and Toronto seems to take advantage of that, scoring three of the next four goals to pull within 13-11. It was like the Phoenix could just could not put the rush away for good when they had them down by those four goals. Uh, Shashank Aladi was really ripping backhands, and um, in the third quarter, they didn't work. And in the fourth quarter, they'll work, and in the second quarter, they worked, but the third quarter, they were a mess. And he'll rip a couple here that just go half the length of the field and then blade into the ground. Do you think he was injured a little bit in that game? I mean, I didn't. Shashank wasn't really moving as, as nice as we want to see him moving, you know? I feel like that calf injury was just getting to him, especially on, on, on trying to break, uh, break the defense and trying to get some backfield passes. I mean, that's a good point. If your calf, if you got pain in your calf, it's tough to really step into those backhands. That could have been it. But <laughs> some of them I were think, really reckless. I think, I think, we, yeah, but I think because he couldn't get separation, I think he was just like, oh my God, I'm just going to chuck it now. He's like, he couldn't get separation on, on offense. 
is Shang's calf muscle and is it in his brain? Because some of the decisions that he was making were really were really uh, questionable. That's for sure in the third quarter. But uh, you know what? I'm shooters shoot in, in that third quarter, right? It's it's thirteen twelve. Um, Toronto has had I think they have two breaks in a row because I think we're up thirteen to nine at one point, and then it's thirteen ten, thirteen eleven, thirteen twelve, and this is a moment in time where in a different Phoenix season, Toronto gets another break. They tie it up and they go on to win the game. And Matt Esser has this huge bid. Like it was as big a bid as he had at the link, except that this one, he actually needed to lay out to get the D. Whereas in that one, he clearly is just milking it for the crowd. I mean, that, that D that D saves this game because I think that's on the goal line that he gets that layout D and, this game has more layout Ds than any game I've ever watched, so it's hard to keep dragging them sometimes. And his one, I mean, Remy Ojo for Toronto had some of the biggest bids I've ever seen in my life in this game. I mean, like six feet off the ground, seven feet off the ground, traveling like 20 feet in the air, ripping it out of people's hands. But this bid by Matt Esser saves the game. And it, it is a turning point for the whole season. If he doesn't make that bid, we don't beat Toronto. I'm with Shaggy on this one, okay? I had it written down on my notebook. Esther at 13-12 catches layout, has a huge layout, and then has any assist for the end zone. You know, this was I wrote it down. This is my turning point of the game. Shaggy, I'm happy to see we're on the same track here. Yeah, did you see who he popped that disc to in the end zone for the goal? It was, it was Zach Sands. Right, it was Zach Sands? Yeah, yeah, Zach Sands is every time. He's, he gets all the big goals in this game. Zach or Hibby. Well, he was just really open, right? Zach Sands. Yeah. I mean, he, he had a he had a flick to someone, and he could have hit it, but he decided not to, and he waited a little bit, and then Zach Sands kind of just crept in the end zone. Yeah, I think cool. he, I think it's like a push pass over the top to Zach. He's just waiting in the back. Everyone's there's a tiny little hammer. <laughs> went went about seven yards, but it went far enough for sure. Um, yeah, but Esther's that that definitely was one of the one of the big plays of the game. Um, no, no question about that. And that's one of the reasons why Esser's on the team this year. Like he might be getting a little long in the tooth as far as AUDL years are concerned, but Esser is one of those guys that comes up big in big situations. And he most certainly came up big in that situation in this particular game. I mean, we, we never see Esser actually getting broken, uh, beat deep, made, made to look a fool. You know, we never see Esser in that position ever. I mean, I, I see it hard for him not to be on the team this year. You know, it's, it's crazy. I, I think about Esther, I'm like, there's no way he's ever, you know, been in a bad position, you know, ever been skied, always been there defensively. So do you think he's like a new train captain bag? You know, maybe 10, 20 years he can be that guy <laughs> <laughs> showing up on the field. I wouldn't put it past him. I wouldn't put it past him. From what, I, from what I'm hearing, this may be his last season in the AUDL. But I mean, yeah. old-timers always say that. Old-timers always say that's their last year, you know. Come on. But, but part of it is, part of it is he's like eight or nine feet wide and he's, he really, he's strong. I mean, he competed in like one of those American Ninja Warrior challenges. He's built really big. And there's a line that Steve has in this game where a Toronto player runs into him and falls over and Steve's like, oh, wouldn't want to run into Matt Esser there. That's the last person I'd want to run into. There yeah. are brick walls that are softer than <laughs> Matt Esser. <laughs> That's true. That's no, that was a yeah. I, I did say that. I mean, uh, <laughs> the guy is 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 a piece of granite, and I mean that in a in a in a, uh, a complimentary sense. No question about it. So then the point after 
now if we get this point when we're we're back up three we look like we're doing great shank uh has the disc he fakes that monster backhand that he's been throwing all quarter and three toronto players dive in front of it and it's just a fake and then he goes and he throws the flick to somebody who's open and it was it was my favorite play by shank all game and he'll have assists in this game they were really cool but that fake where he gets the whole Toronto team to jump on it because he's been throwing it all quarter, and then he just dumps it. Ah, that was awesome. I loved that. Hey, maybe that was a plan. Maybe that was what he was trying to do. You know, I thought it was an injury, but maybe it was it was that he was trying to get into Toronto's uh, rush's head. You know, just trying to say, hey, I'm going to throw a backhand again and fake it. Around this time, I think my favorite line from Steve comes up where he just like this Toronto rush player just blatantly travels through a cup. Steve's just like. <laughs> Look like he even Russell Westbrook would have called that travel. Even Russell Westbrook would have called that a travel. <laughs> and then he gets the camera guy going like, "What about LeBron?" <laughs> my my favorite line is at the end when I, uh, well, well, we'll get to that in a, in, a, in a minute too. But anyway, um, so with two o two left in the third quarter, the Phoenix. Thanks to Matt Esser's big block and his uh, little short hammer goal to Zach Sands. And then Bryce Dunn has a big rip to Peter Burt to give the Phoenix a 15-12 lead, which would be the biggest lead that they would have for the rest of the game at this point. And things get a little tight. The uh, Toronto, to their credit, they scored again at the end of the quarter to pull within 15-13. And then to start the fourth quarter, they got... Another break to pull it in 15-14. This was tough, too, because Mott gets a great D, and they call a strip on him, and Mott gets that D, and then he's off. He's off the screen by the time they call his strip. Like, someone would have just picked up that disc and hooked it to him, and it's after a timeout call by Hanson on a play where the Phoenix were moving it. So, really, like, this was another moment when the Phoenix could have fallen apart. Because emotionally, that is extremely draining. That we call a timeout, we have our guys on, and Mott, that's a bad, that was a bad call. He did not, it was not a strip. Well, and then those happened throughout the, uh, throughout the game. Huck, you look like you want to say something. This is a feeling we always have when looking at the Phoenix. I mean, I, I'm thinking emotionally, I was in the stands in that game. Emotionally, I was just like, oh my God, again, this is what the Phoenix do. You know, they give me hope, they give me hope, and then the fourth quarter comes along and they just lose it, you know? They go down by a point or lose by a point, and I'm like, oh, my God, I hope this doesn't happen again. You know, because third quarter, I was sitting there pretty. I'm like, oh, my God, we're up three. We might win this game because in the ADL game, we're like three points up, have one more quarter left. That, that's easily doable. That's easily winnable game, you know, when you're up that, that much. But then when it, got, when it got really close, I just remember the emotions just like, oh, not again, not again. This is the Phoenix I'm used to. Damn it. <laughs> Right, and then I think a lot of us were feeling that way, but uh, the Phoenix somehow, like, found a way to to, to fight through this little bit of adversity. Um, with 8.52 left in the fourth quarter, Mike Arcata hauled in a big lefty flick from Stu Heen at the back of the end zone. Yeah, it's one of only two throws Stu completes this game. <laughs> Poor Stu. <laughs> well, Stu, Stu completes the uh, the game winner. Yeah. The, the eventual well, game winner too. So I mean, like you know, let's not let's not just discount those throws. You know what I mean? If he if he's throwing if he's not having a good game and he's got the uh, gumption to throw his big lefty flick to the back of the end zone to Mike Arcata in the fourth quarter of a one point game against the Toronto Rush, there's some chutzpah there. 
Yeah, Stu's a great player. This was a tough game. And and watching him come through in these big moments is, you know, why he's a good player. That was a crazy play by Mike. I mean, he, yeah. he really toes the line. Yeah, and people were the, – the, the Toronto Rush guys were doing the uh, – their their hands were going up and down. Um, and it, caught it. Yeah, right, and I was like wondering, like, how are they saying he bobbled it or or what? Because he clap caught it, towed the back line, and it was clearly a goal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like Corey Clement in the Super Bowl. And then, uh, yeah, it was like Corey Clement in the Super Bowl, except Corey Clement's toe might have been on that line. I still to this day, I don't know how they called that uh, a a a touchdown for the Eagles, but I'll take it. I'll I'll I'll, I'll take it, and I'll take Arcata towing the line against the rush. And to give the Phoenix a 16-14 lead. Then disaster strikes again for the Phoenix. The uh, the letdown looks like it's in full swing as Toronto comes back with two goals, breaking the Phoenix to tie the game at 16 all with 3-15 left. And at this moment in time, it's like it's terrifying. Well, I'm I'm just saying, like, what what was what were your feelings? Did you think the Phoenix were going to pull it out when they tied it at 16? I know, I know when when the when the Phoenix went up 16-14, that Andrea DeSavado sat there and and she said they're going to watch the the rush are going to tie this game at 16s, and sure enough, they did. Well, so at the time, I couldn't, I really couldn't move. I mean, I'd been running up and down the whole game, and I was exhausted. I was mentally and physically drained. And I was just standing there trying my best to not let it come through on my voice. And I figured that if I didn't move, I wouldn't have to let everyone know that I was scared and a little disappointed. So <laughs> you can see me. You can see if you if you know that I am there. So I could see me the whole game running up and down the sideline. And if you look at me after that point, I'm just like standing still holding the mic, not moving. Like feet, feet planted <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> just, you want to curl, curl up in a ball. <laughs> I, I also, I was looking at Sasha and Reina, the coach last year for the Toronto Rush, and the whole game, he's just coming out on the field, he's screaming at the refs, he's yelling at Philly players, he's yelling at Toronto players, and when they score that point, he is the calmest he's ever been, and it freaked me out. He was, <laughs> he was so fired up the whole game, and all of a sudden, now he's calm, I, I like couldn't take it. I was Shaggy, what did you sound like calling that? You're an you know, in-stadium announcer, right? So what did you sound like calling... 16-16, they tied it up. My guess is that it doesn't really sound much different. When, whenever I'm calling it, I always like will say, oh, Toronto scores. I give very little emotion when the other team scores, but I definitely wasn't excited. I, I, probably, I don't think I changed the way that it sounded, but I definitely changed the way that I felt. No, I, yeah. I just find it really impressive, for, especially in this game. We know that the Phoenix win, right? And, and like the negativity in that whole stream is like, oh, my God. 16-16, are you kidding me? We were up the whole game. 16-16, and, and you can just see the whole the whole stadium kind of like take a breath out, you know, just like kind of be really exasperated. So it's, I, I think it's really impressive that the players, you know, had that same mental toughness going through the game, you know, and try to dig it out. Yeah, and then, and then Toronto actually has the disc to go up 17-16 on the Phoenix late in the game with just over a minute left. But with, uh, with 107 remaining in the game, you have Zach Sands rising to the occasion and getting a diving block for the Phoenix. And then Stu Heen finds Himalaya Meta for a big goal. And the Phoenix 
take the 17-16 lead. Now, that block by Zach Sands was one of the pivotal plays of the entire game because it looked like Toronto was going in to take the lead. And for him to get that block gave the Phoenix new life. And we keep turning it over this point, too. Like, I think Weaver throws it away on the first point. He oh, throws no, it to the ground. You no, know, he throws it in the triple coverage is what he does. <laughs> that was <laughs> terrible. I mean, come on, man. And then and then Hemi, I, I mean, Hemi has an insane D just to get it back. And then we dump it forever. And then uh, then we throw it away. And then Zach gets his great D. Hemi also has an amazing D on this point. Yes, yeah, so uh, Hemi got a big block on it. He got a fingertip on a deep shot and uh, gave the disc back to the Phoenix, but the Phoenix turned it over. And set up Zach Sands' heroics. So now the Phoenix have a 17-16 lead with a minute left. And sure enough, the Rush are working the disc up the tide of force overtime. And Marioka, he had a, he has the disc in the middle of the field and tries an inside-out flick. And Mark Sands comes up with a diving block for the Phoenix to give them the disc back with about 38 seconds remaining in the game. Were you feeling comfortable then that the Phoenix were going to win, or were you waiting for the Phoenix to make yet another mistake? I don't feel comfortable in this game until the exact last second because I am not. I just when Mark gets that D, I just wasn't able to look at the time. My eyes were glued on the field, and so the whole time I'm watching like Shank to Arcada to Shank to. I'm just watching them like give it back and forth. And I'm like, oh my god, they need to do something. Like this game is, we gotta, we gotta, we can't just dump it forever. And it wasn't until maybe the second to last throw that I looked over at the clock and saw that there were nine seconds left. It wasn't until there were nine seconds left in the game that I felt safe. And six of those last nine seconds were a Mike Arcada throw the length of the field. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> really until Mike let go of that disc, it wasn't until then that I was like, whoa. That was a score, though, right? That was a score. Yeah. yeah Arcada, <laughs> And it'll count Arcada, Arcada to Burt. And the Phoenix held on for a 18-16 win over the Toronto Rush, the first ever win by the Phoenix over the Rush in franchise history. And it, it really set the tone for the rest of the season, to be honest with you. that, that I, I think Philadelphia fans saw that the Rush were defeated, and they, they started to come out and they started to believe in the team a little bit towards the end of the year. Steve, what was your turning point? I mean, we're, we're through the whole game now. I, I, I don't remember you saying anything about turning point. I'll let you well, think. I, I, I was saving my turning point for the end of the game here. I think it's clearly when they put my daughter on the screen as she was flossing that, that allowed the feed. That, that, was, that was the turning point of the game because when when she started, when before they put her on, the, the rush had tied the game at 18-16. Then they put her on watching her floss on, on TV with, with another young lady. And sure enough, the Phoenix scored the next two goals and win the game. I don't see how my daughter flossing isn't the turning point of the game. You're a sports fanatic. I can tell. I mean, you probably wear the same underwear to every Eagles game there is. I, I, I wear the same underwear regardless there, Huck. Give me a break there. Like, like I do laundry. Give me a break. Every day. Every day. I'm hardcore. Did he wake up alive today? Same underwear. <laughs> it's worked these last, you know few decades, and I work the next few decades. Uh, the joke's on you guys, as if I wear underwear. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> Only to Eagles games do you wear underwear. 
<laughs> no, the turning the, the turning point in the game for me was Zach Sands block. I think that was the besides Esser's block. I think that was a huge a huge turning point in, in the uh, in the game. It got them the disc back. It allowed them to take the lead late and then put them back in the driver's seat when, like Shaggy's been saying this, this whole podcast, that Phoenix teams in in past seasons would have folded under the pressure that the Phoenix were facing in that 16-16 crucible. And the fact that they came out of it with the point, what I think was a probably the most pivotal turning point in the game. I still think that Arcata towing the line, that's my turning point in the game. No, you already called it. You already said Esther was. Come on, yeah, man. but I'm. I'm. There were a lot of turning <laughs> points. To have more than one. This game. This game hinged and turned on all kinds of directions to, toward the entire the entire two and a half hours it was on. No, you know you know what my turning point is actually. So Akifumi Murioka going into that game led. He was tied with uh, Rowan McDonald for the lead league in plus minus per game. Uh, he played more games, so he actually had the highest plus minus. He ends this game with a minus one. Uh, he only completes 70% of his passes. He barely touches the disc compared to what he was doing before. That's my turning point of the game. Being able to shut down. Now, you know, Cam Harris and Nathan Hurst, uh, they they have always been like 30 goal, 30 assist guys. But Akifumi Morioka came into that game as their star goal line threat. And being able to shut him down, that was my turning point. We took their best option and we shut him down. Uh, what about you, Huck? Well, my training point is still so Esther, but I, I, I think, I think I want, I want like for people who don't know, what is so special about Aki Marioka? What is so special about him? What's what makes him different? I mean, was he was he the player that came from Japan just yeah, to play for the ADL, just to play for Toronto Rush? Yeah, I don't know if that's why he came from Japan. I mean, he may have moved to Toronto because people move, and he was re- he's really good. I mean, he was a really good player last year. He'll probably be a really good player this year, too, unless something happens, like this season doesn't happen. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I, heard, I heard rumors where he just – the only reason he moved from Japan was just for a summer to play with the Toronto Rush. You know, that's, oh, I that's, didn't know that's that. Not, that's what I thought it was. Cool. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was the whole thing. That's what made him a big deal, you know, because he was like a kind of superstar that Toronto was getting. I mean, he was extremely good last season. He's in the same mold as a lot of these guys who are MVP caliber players for a lot of teams. Mott and uh, and Rowan and Max Shepard. He's a little bit, uh, he's not quite on the level throws-wise that Mott and Rowan are. But he, he is this extremely quick, he's not the biggest guy, but he is, he's an explosive athlete. And he, he also, his like, his acceleration is extremely fast. So he can be not moving, and then all of a sudden he's over there, and you know you're stuck flat-footed on defense. That's why being able to contain him the way that we did was really impressive. And the Phoenix showed all season that they were able to contain the number one threat extremely well, unless the number one threat was Ben Yacht. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's a, a, a tip of the cap goes to Eric Nardelli and, and his uh, lockdown defense. I mean, he I'm sure was one of the guys on Marioka to start the game, and I'm sure he switched on and off of them uh, as needed. I think, I mean, I was counting. It looked like he played maybe four or five points where he was matched up on Marioka. But part of that is that they gave they gave Toronto a different defensive look every point in the first quarter and a half of the game. They They wouldn't repeat a defense, which I think gave them a lot of fits. Toronto won't start completing offensive possessions until, you know, really the second half. The, the, that, that strategy helped the Phoenix jump out to that 9-5 to five lead, and it helped them 
to maintain that into the uh, into the into the third quarter, that four goal advantage. So yeah, I mean it was a it was a brilliant strategy and it, and it worked. And then the Phoenix held on in the end. There, you know, like you said, it was one of the more exciting ultimate games that uh, I've been a part of. I think you could hear it in my voice on the uh, <laughs> uh, on the uh, when I was doing the announcing. But yeah, when the when the Phoenix uh, they they put them right into the thick of the playoff hunt, the uh, it put them uh, in in the second in the second place ahead of the DC Breeze, who were were two and three at the time, and uh, it was the for the first time in years, it was like there's hope for the Phoenix and the fact that they could make the playoffs. Yeah, little did we know we'd have to play New York three times. Of all the teams that played three times last year, the New York Empire was not the 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 best. Uh, option to fall the phoenix's way for sure so i mean how, how many times in new york played a rush just once right yeah oh my god in in new york now the the caveat was that toronto hosted a game against madison which at the beginning of the year i said i didn't think they were going to be very good in the middle of the year i said they're not very good and i said that toronto was going to whoop them in toronto and then they did whoop them in toronto and then uh so yeah, I mean, I was right about that. But New York had to go down to Raleigh to play there. So that was the reason that they only played each other once. That was the trade that they got, which doesn't really make sense from, like, a divisional standpoint. Um, but whatever, I'm not in charge of scheduling. Maybe maybe you should be in charge of scheduling there, Shay. <laughs> okay, I'll take – look, I have uh, – my schedule is pretty opened up right now. I'm not allowed to work. So um, if uh, Steve Hall, when you listen to this, you know, shoot me a call. I'll, I'll – I'll work with you to schedule the, the games next season. You know, let me, let me tell you something, Shaggy. You know, I have an inside scoop on this. I mean, uh, I, I, you know, my, my brother was actually, he was working on this uh, data analytics program where he kind of used some machine learning to figure out a schedule for this season. So I think the schedules they do from now on, Shaggy, are just they plug them to a computer, put in all the variables that they want, and they let them run. That's the program he made. He made this weird program which kind of, Schedules the efficiency of, oh, but let's have the most efficient schedule possible, meaning the, less, the least amount of miles traveled, so least amount of harsh, hard travel on the players' bodies and least amount of time that events are taken up. So I, I think they worked on that program. And I think they already kind of had a schedule outlined from, like, all the variables that Arcata and uh, I think the other teams kind of gave him. Did Hemi's program factor in um, a global pandemic that would cut half the season? Or did, he, did that one get missed when they were working on the program? I think, you know what, I think, I think Ultra Frisbee is very special where we don't need to cut half a season. I think we could take the whole summer, honestly. We usually end in July, right? We can go all the way to August, September, and that's fine. What we'd see would be, it would be a really interesting season. That whole DC team, right, a lot of them play for truck stop. And they lost players this year who decided... They only have enough time to commit to one elite level frisbee team. They're going to commit to truck stop. They lost like, oh man, I can't remember his name, but that's what ended up happening to their, <laughs> their like star handler, the guy who has completed more passes than any other player over the last two oh, seasons. Oh, I know you're talking uh, about. He he decided, look, I'm only going to play one team this year. It's going to be truck stop. So it, we would see where the loyalty of a lot of these players lie, and guys like New York, where they're contractually not allowed to play club games until the AUDL season is over. You know, they New York, it might not affect New York at all. Uh, Mo- Montreal and Ottawa, it might not affect them very much either because they're, I mean, I don't really know the Canadian club schedule as well as I know the American one. 
But no, they they only care about they only care about the ADL. That's why Toronto's been historically great because they they all kind of congress around this ADL team. Well, it's true, but also Toronto would have to choose between go to rush, right? DC is going to have to choose between truck stop or um, the breeze. Raleigh's going to have to choose between ring or the flyers. How many of those players are really going to put ring of fire has been a perennial contender for years, for years and years and years. How many of those guys are going to be like, I'll put that on hold so that I can do the AUDL. I don't know if that's the choice they're going to make in Philly. We watched like, Nard and Mott had an AMP tournament. They played a Phoenix game and then like hopped on a plane so they could go play with AMP. I think it was, it might've been a world's game that AMP was in. So they, some, some of the Philly players have, have made that decision and others have not. Others chose to go and play for in patrol tournaments last season. And they didn't come on these Canada trips where we had these huge wins. So it'll be really interesting if the season gets backed up a lot of these teams where the, their club scene is a really big deal, Seattle, L.A., San Francisco, I think those teams will suffer. And hopefully Philly doesn't. Hopefully, you know, Philly is built around players that are choosing the Phoenix first, which would be cool and rare, honestly, for the AUDL. Didn't, didn't they uh, decide this year the Phoenix kind of chose players that would put ADL first? Didn't they pick those type of players? I don't know if it was super intentional, but I know that Hampson has at both tryouts, he talked about how it was a commitment and that he was really looking for guys who were really willing to commit to the season. So maybe they were putting an emphasis on that. I mean, think about it. In this past game we just discussed, David Bear, I mean, you know, I see him very little in the whole season, but in this game, I think he was phenomenal on defense. I mean, you can really see that this slide of his hands on defense and be that really good handler that we need on defense. And I feel like if he was there most of the season, we could have seen that. We could have seen uh, maybe some wins. Yeah, this was a great game by a lot of players that aren't coming back. This is Dave Bear's best game of the season. Now, he only played like four games last year, which is part of why uh, he stood out so much in this game is that he just wasn't there. But B.A., who's not coming back, had a great game. Uh, Zach Sands, who moved, he had a great game. And Billy Sickles. I mean, Billy Sickles was one of our best players last year. He's not coming back either. So oh, he's not coming back. Is this breaking or am I just late? <laughs> Maybe he's not on the roster. I don't know. If, oh, no. I'm not really breaking anything. Oh, God. Are you okay, Harvish? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not okay. I knew we were going to lose Zach. I knew Zach was not going to come back because he's moving to Virginia Beach. But really, Sickles. And also, Ethan Fortin. This was Ethan Fortin's best game of the season, by far. I mean, he's, he's dynamic. He's making uh, cuts in and around the disc that I, he won't – he doesn't make for the whole season. He's in D.C. now, too. Ethan Porton didn't – he's not coming back to the team either. That's ironic. I thought his best game was in D.C., actually. <laughs> that first opening season game in D.C., I think he's the only one who kind of showed up. Well, Ethan, Ethan definitely took some deep shots in the, uh, in, the, in the rush game for sure, you know. I think, I think most of them were turns, actually. Yep, they are. They are. But wouldn't, you take, ben, wouldn't, wouldn't you take Ben Simmons shooting a three and missing – then just, and, then, and then him rather not shoot a three at all? I mean, it might show progression, but come on. All right, all right, all right. I'm reaching. I'm reaching. No, <laughs> I disagree with that. No one – lay off of Ben Simmons. He's our best player. And, and also, <laughs> and also he, he doesn't have to be Kevin Durant. He's Rajon Rondo crossed with a superhero. It's okay to be who he is. Like, Rajon Rondo could shoot, man. Come on. No, he could not. He is he is Rondo crossed with a superhero. He, if you took he Rondo tried. and you put him in Superman's body, 
He tried to shoot. He doesn't even try to shoot. He did not try to shoot. He only tries to shoot now, like 12 years later, and he's playing with LeBron James, who's making him shoot. He didn't start trying to shoot until he went to like to New Orleans. When your coach tells you, when the coach comes out and says Ben Simmons is going to take at least one three pointer a game, and he and he comes out to the press and says I've told him this and he's agreed to it, and then Ben Simmons doesn't take any three pointers in the next game, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a it problem. sounds like a problem with the coach. I, no wait, Sh- Shaggy, I, I have a quick question. Okay, what what is this? I mean, I'm I'm a really bad basketball player, man. I, I shoot threes all the time. I know I'm not going to make them. I mean, yeah, you, why does he not shoot what? threes? I mean, there's so many possessions in a basketball game. What? I mean, we're asking for one three. Even I'm tempted to shoot a three. You know who I'd you know who I'd rather have on the Sixers than Harvish Huck Meta? Ben Simmons. I mean, Look, yeah. you you play to your, you should players should play to their strengths. You know who probably shouldn't be shooting as many threes as he does. Joel Embiid or Brooke Lopez. Everyone's like, oh, Brooke Lopez, the big stretch five. He's so great. It's amazing. He was shooting like 28% from three. Those are just wasted possessions. That's, not, that's, not, that's not worth it. Matisse should shoot threes. He's, he's good at it. Yes. Well, I'm just saying, if he can shoot a three, so can Ben Simmons. No, they're different players. Look, Himalaya Meta is one of the best players on our team. He, he really is. He's one of the most dynamic and impressive cutters in the East last year. He was one of the best players on the Phoenix. How many hucks do you think Himalaya Meta threw last season? Less than 10. Less than 5. Less than 5? Less than 2. Because he threw 1. So, I, well, actually, he did throw 2, but one of them slipped out of his hand, so we'll never know if it was supposed to be a huck or not. It did just kind of, like, flick into the ground. 20 yards. Do you want Himmy to throw more hucks, Harvish? Uh, yeah, because you know why? They triple and double team him. They triple and double team him all the time because they know that he can't throw that well. So I need him to show him, the players that he can throw the disc so they stop doing that. So without double teaming him and having turn. You know, I, oh. that's why I think it's important. That's the same thing with Ben Simmons. I mean, they're uh, all. Uh, they're yeah, all he doesn't want to throw. And Ben doesn't want to shoot him. If Ben Simmons hits a three pointer, now they can't sag into the lane and cut off all the drives. When, I mean, come when, on! One one thing opens up another. I mean, you got to you got to you got to have a well-rounded game, Shag. When you watch the 2001 Lakers, are you like, man, Shaq stinks? He doesn't shoot a single three. He hasn't shot he's a three a all game. Specimen. Oh, what he's is Shaq a physical doing? Specimen. He's different. He's different. He's a physical specimen, and he was dominating everyone in the paint. Yet, you had Kobe Bryant shooting the threes. If you don't have Kobe Bryant shooting threes, then yeah, maybe then maybe you need. If Shaq is your best player, we got Shaq Josh is, Richardson and, and Tobias Harris and Al Al Farouk Horford to shoot threes. That's why Al is specifically there, so we have someone that can stretch the floor alongside Ben and Joe. All right. you, a team you know, you know that Jack doesn't joke. shoot threes. You know why that's those players shoot threes? Al Horford is a I got a question. No, wait, wait. I got, I got a quick question. Harris is getting $200 million over four years. Why isn't he taking the good threes? Why is no, every game? He is taking the three-pointers, but you need he's a shooting guard to shoot the three-pointer, too. Shaggy, I got a question. Shaggy, if you're in a frisbee game, and you're not marked, and you see the someone wide open in the end zone. Would you huck the disc? Yeah, because I huck the disc. I not am you. Huck a- oh, oh my god! Any player would huck the disc if they have no mark in there and someone's wide open. Same thing. Ben Simmons. Are you, no are you saying Ben Simmons wouldn't huck the disc? Are you saying I, Ben Simmons wouldn't huck the disc? Because I'm saying Ben Simmons wouldn't huck the disc. 
I have we had no mark on him, and there's a guy wide open in the end zone. Joel Embiid's wide open in the end zone. Ben Simmons has the disc. He's 30, 40 yards out. That disc isn't going up. You could pick any player in Philadelphia. You could make a line. You could pick seven players, and I would take and and give me six Ben Simmonses and me. And we would play Frisbee, and Ben Simmons would not huck once, and we'd beat your team. That's how confident I am that Ben Simmons doesn't need to shoot, and he doesn't need to huck. What are we talking about? Players should do what they excel at. You I need think, some players think. to huck, and you need some players to cut. You know what we don't need? You know what would be really bad for us? Is if, like, Ethan Foran spent all of last season trying to force lefty scoobers to people. But you know what was really good for us was Mott throwing lefty scoobers. Mott's good at lefty scoobers. Ethan wasn't good at lefty scoobers. Because no one's good at lefty scoobers except Mott. So it's good when Mott does it. It's bad when other people do it. If you're bad at the thing, you shouldn't try to force doing it because other people get annoyed about it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What makes you think Ben Simmons is bad at shooting three-pointers? Because he doesn't want to do it. Because he doesn't want to do it when he those are, those, are two, those are two different things. Those are two different things. Not wanting to do it doesn't mean you're not good at it. If he I, thought I, he I was good, there. he would do it. No, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. I watch, I go to Sixers games a lot, and I have seats on the floor, as you know, with my buddy, okay? And when we're there pregame, you can see Ben Simmons jacking three-pointers, no problem, from behind the backboard in the corner of the, uh, of, the of the court. He's hitting rainbow threes. Like, he, he can shoot the three-pointer. That's the most maddening part is he can do it. He can do it, and it's just he's not. There's like, It's not that he sucks at it. He's good at it. It's just He just doesn't do it. In warm-ups, I've thrown 50-yard scubers across the field. I've thrown dozens of them. Guess how many uh, – not scubers. I'm sorry. Thumbers. Guess how many thumbers I've thrown in a frizzy game. None. None. Because it doesn't matter that I am able to throw a thumber in perfect conditions when there's no pressure on me. I don't feel comfortable with that throw in a game. So I've never even thought, I don't even think to throw a thumber. You know what I think to throw instead of a thumber? I, like a high-release flick. I, I've thought, I've thrown so many throws that you release in the position of a thumber. You know how many times I thought, hmm, I actually have a good thumber. I could throw a thumber here. No times. It doesn't occur to me to throw a thumber. The same Whoa. with Ben. It doesn't occur to him to shoot just a three. Because you lack creativity, just because you lack creativity on the Frisbee field with your throws does not mean Ben Simmons can't hit a three-pointer. Ben I'm Simmons just shouldn't be pigeonholed into doing things other players are good at because he's uncomfortable with it. What he should do are the things that he's great at, like dunking over people and driving around them and passing it to people that you don't think are open so that they get, they get cool shots. And all those things become easier if he hits one three-pointer. Giannis didn't shoot a three for four years. Now he's the best player in the world. Ben's played three seasons. Really, one and a half seasons. Ben Simmons is not the best player in the world. Yeah. I Because he doesn't shoot any three-pointers. In order to be the best player in the world, you got to shoot three-pointers. No, you don't. And he (laughs) might. We don't know if he will. But I got to say, making it a big deal every time everything happens, I can't help him. There's no way. He's like, oh, man. Even on the burning bird, they're talking about my threes. You know what? Now I'm going to change. No, if he's uncomfortable with it, he's still going to be uncomfortable with it. He needs a coach that's able to coach him into that position. And then he needs – I like Brett Brown. Oh, so you agree. You agree that he should be coaching the shooting threes. You agree that he should be coaching the shooting threes. You just said that, man. Yes, I agree. I do. Exactly. You do think he needs to shoot threes. But he's not <laughs> doing it. So we shouldn't be telling – we should not be telling him to do it. He'll do it when he's good and ready. 
I'm not telling him to do anything. I'm merely suggesting that his game would be more well-rounded had, uh, if he chooses to attempt a three-point shot. That's, That's telling it, with it, more words. Shaggy, <laughs> all we want is his full potential, okay? That's all we want. You know, we don't want anything else. Look, Remy Ojo plays three, seven points this game. He has, the, he has five of the biggest layouts I've ever seen. He gets three layout Ds. You know oh, what yeah, Remy Ojo didn't play that game? Right, he didn't exactly. huck. What? Uh, one of those layups was right into Greg Martin's chest. Just decked him in the end zone. As yeah, but I, think, <laughs> I think Greg, Greg caught it there. Greg gets the disc from him. If Sasha Rayner came out and said, hey, I want Remy Ojo to huck the disc after he gets a sick layout block. And he wrong. Did, and it, well, I'm just saying, if he did say that, then, then it's up to Remy to get up and throw the huck. I'm sorry, but you, you're sitting there and telling me that the coach is saying one thing and you're doing another. That's not that's no good. And part of that's on the player. If the player agrees he's going to shoot a three-pointer in a game, then he should jack at least one three-pointer in the game. And that's you, it. You think that Ben is a better player than Brett Brown is a coach. Percentage-wise, is Ben at a, at a higher level amongst all the players than Brett is as a coach? Who do you think is higher? Well, do you, do you think players should be thinking coach, coaches that way? No, I think that the players people should be, who are... Players should be coached. A good player is coachable. And okay, it doesn't but, matter who his coach is, he should learn, listen to the coach. I mean, that's kind of his job. Okay, so I disagree with that. Oh, my word! Here's why. Here's why. Here's why. If your team is not achieving the results that you thought they were going to achieve, if you don't meet predictions, look, last year the Phoenix didn't make, they didn't win as many games as we wanted them to win, or as we thought they were going to win. They didn't beat a single team from the U.S., so that's a change, right? It's not some, like, arbitrary thing. It's one of two things. Either your players aren't as good as you thought they were, or your system's not as good as you thought it was. And the system comes down to the coaching. Last year... I don't think our players were quite as good as we thought it, they were. And I don't think our system was quite as good as we thought it was either. And my guess is that a lot of the offseason has gone into addressing those two issues. That's why they're working on this crazy, like, handbook so that they can work on the system to tune it to a stage where they want. And it's, by the way, it's, it's not zero sum because you could have a really, really, really good system. It could be better than most systems in the whole world. But if it's worse than the 20 best systems, that's going to show in a place like the NBA or the ADL where the 20 best systems are on display. New York had great players, and they had a good system that played well to those good players. They were the best team last season. It doesn't matter how good our system and players uh, were. Uh, being I disagree. New York just had good players, not a good system. Come on. They were, they it, were down most games. Most games they were down. Their players they never don't. lost. They never I mean, lost. That's because of their players, not the system. I mean, look at the, Cle- the Cleveland Cavaliers and LeBron going to the finals this last year. And you think their system lost. looks great? They I mean, lost. They, they lost. Beat, but they beat teams with great systems like, like the Celtics. Do you th- it's, it's, not, it's not zero sum, and it's not one or the other all the time. Do you think that, do you think that, do you think that their personnel was worse than the, than the Golden State Warriors? Do you think that their system was worse than the Golden State Warriors, or do you think it was both? I think it was just personnel. Okay, that's fine. Do you, I you thought so I you see, thought I both? Oh, both. I'm sorry, both. You're right. Yeah, both. Right. Both it was both. We don't we don't play frisbee in a in a style that's going to beat that team. There is maybe 
maybe there's no way we can do it, but maybe there is a way. You have to. So look, bringing it back to the 76ers, either Ben isn't as good a player as we think he is, which I'm not willing to admit, or the system is not catering to a way to get him to succeed. And if that's the case, then make a system that gets him to succeed. He is the player of the future. I love Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid is the most important player to Philadelphia. Ben is my favorite player on the Sixers. I ride or die for that guy. And if and I I it it blows my mind that people like blame him for not doing this one thing that he clearly is uncomfortable with doing. Figure out a way to get him to do it. That's what the coach should do. It's to put the players in a system to succeed. This isn't the 50s. This isn't like Red Arback screaming at players until they just do what he says. Or uh, who's the guy that Bobby Knight? We're not, we don't have Bobby Knight anymore. You need to work as a unit. It's a business. And part of the business is the people who are, the management have to be able to work with the other co-managements. It's like a team. And if, if, the, if the, my favorite player is not excelling, yeah, I blame the system. I don't blame him. It's not the Ben. You've already said that Ben Simmons it does excel. He is excelling. He, we're just saying he's not listening to the coach. And that's so a problem. Get a different coach to listen to. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Ben Simmons Ben Simmons isn't going to listen to anybody but Ben Simmons. And that's been if you ever saw his his uh, ESPN show one one and done, uh, he's all about the Benjamins, bro. And he he's going to go wherever the money is and uh, he he might be the player of the future, but he's more robotic than he is uh, than he lets on. And he just wants to. He just wants to get paid, and he doesn't care what the coach says or There's what anything else. Uh, if that were the case, then he'd do the thing that they're telling him to do. He would shoot threes. If all he was about was getting paid, he'd take threes. Because then no one could say this is a weak point of his game. No one would say anything was a weak point of his game. He's do, he's not a robot because he was he when he was sometimes in those these Sixers games. He's the only one that cared. If everyone cared about basketball as much as Ben Simmons cares about basketball, we would have not lost the game this season. Uh, I don't know about that. You just said the the system was bad. So if the system is bad, how it doesn't matter how much anybody cares, right? No, it's it's both things because if everyone cares as much as Ben cares, then all the players are at a level where the system matters less. Like Huck thinks about New York. <laughs> I, I'm, I'll be honest, man. New York just has talent. I mean, it really bit them in the butt in last year's nationals, uh, the club nationals, where they just like, went to like kind of went to sleep and let the other team go up by five or six. And they're like, oh, we'll come back. Don't worry about it. And so it didn't happen. So I, I do think the players uh, for them is what, what kind of keeps them alive. I think that um, Seattle in the club division was actually, I think they were the, the more talented team or at least an equivalently talented team. They were built differently. They're not as large, but they're quicker. Um, I also think that Chicago Machine was an extremely good team last season, and that they have they were they were the third most talented team, but it wasn't that big a margin. And when I watched them play at the U.S. Open in Philly or at the Pro Flight Championships or whatever, I was really impressed by Chicago. So I think that the, the talent gap there is smaller than you think. I also think that, Lindsley and Mickle had really bad national championships for, I mean, for their levels. Now, Jimmy Mickle is often lauded as one of the best players in the world. So for him to do bad is other players doing, having the best games of their life. But for him, he was bad. And Grant Lindsley also did not look good. And so they came in, they thought, you're right, that was a system thing, because they thought they were untouchable, and they got touched a lot by a lot of different teams. 
And they ran into a Chicago machine team that had already played them three times, had played them really close, and knew exactly what they needed to do to beat them, and they got bad games from their best players. So that was the players didn't come through. But the in this game, the Phoenix play, in the Toronto-Philly game, the Phoenix players play, had an all-time showing. Like, I think for a lot of players – this was one of their best games. I think this is one of Hemi's best games of the season. It's Mike Arcata's most productive. I think he'll have a game against DC that is more impressive. But it's Zach Sands. It's like he, he stuck out. To, like when we thought about doing this, I was like, oh, I like Zach Sands was amazing. But there are all these players that have amazing performances that I forget. Uh, Nick Patel skies someone for a D. Ryan Weaver skies someone for a D. The players are playing out of their, their minds. And the system was also catered perfectly. Like everything that that we were doing except for the timeout calls, which like sometimes that goes away. Sometimes it doesn't, but strategically it was a great game by the, by the Phoenix. Like both well, things came together here. Well, Steve said to start the podcast that Toronto was coming in with a bunch of people missing. So of course our players have to be kind of up there, right? Our players have to kind of be rising above the average. That's true. And I thought that we were going to win this game because specifically Mark Lloyd didn't play for the Toronto this season, this past season. And in previous years, whenever we'd gotten close, he'd just he'd murdered the, the Phoenix. That was right at the beginning of the season. That's why I thought we were going to win. You know, it was close, even though they were missing players. All right. So I guess next week we'll be pre- previewing the uh, reviewing the July 9th game against the New York Empire for Harvish Huck Meta. Welcome back there, Harvish. For Alexander Shaggy Shragus. I'm Steve Leiner. Thank you for joining us on the Burning Bird Presents the Phoenix Files Game of the Week.